Now, earlier this week, I interviewed Sister Bridie Coonanhan of the Little Sisters of the Assumption, who spent a number of years working in Limerick, and we spoke for about 80 minutes. Now, this morning, I'd like to play the last 15 minutes of that interview. We'll broadcast the full interview, uh, hopefully sometime in June. So let's listen to Sister Bridie. And I believe more recently, you were in Madagascar. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Oh, Lord. Madagascar, John, is an extremely poor country. Madagascar has 70% of its population in poverty. That means that the, the whole country doesn't have the infrastructure. And there's a kind of a rating of all the countries of the world. And Madagascar is one of the least developed. And of all the countries that we are in, it is the poorest. Because 70% are officially under the poverty line. So, you know, you, you really couldn't imagine, even though Brazil and the semi-desert and all of that was very poor, Madagascar was even poorer. It really is, because they don't have the infrastructure. Now, I, when I went there, I, I had been supporting projects there for the past three years. We have two very, very good projects there. One is a health project where our sisters set up a health centre They've just bought a house and started working in it. And uh, there was no health centre in this area of a, of a big city. And on the far side of the town, the sisters have an education project where they're doing fantastic education with children. Now, I could go in a little bit more in detail if you'd like to hear a little bit more about those. Yeah, yeah, please, why not? OK, so one of the things that I discovered when I went to visit the health centre, which I had been supporting for the last three years without ever seeing it, was that, my gosh, eh, here was a whole big neighbourhood that had no health service. So I saw at first hand the distance that sick people had to go to get to a hospital. Now, the hospital was a long ways away. There's no public transport. So if you don't have transport or if you can't afford to get someone to take you, you have to walk. And it was a long ways, a few kilometers to find this public hospital. Then when you get there, every single thing in that hospital, John, you have to pay for. From the time you put your foot inside the door, you have to pay for every tablet that you get. You have to, you have, to have someone to give you your meals. So your family has to bring in your food. And the worst thing of all, if you die, you are charged by the length of time that your body is left in the hospital before your family can come and get you. So there is no such thing as free health. No such thing. Every iota. And that's now the public hospital, where everything has to be paid for. So that was one of the reasons why the congregation bought a house. And the, the sister who's running it is a nurse and a midwife. She's a missionary there from the island of Tonga, a little sister of the Assumption. And she's there with a small group of sisters from France and from Brazil, who are all missionaries working in this health centre. So you can see the great need because they started, we were started helping them in 2017. Then in 2018, they had 1,606 patients. And by the end of 2019, the number had gone up to 4,627. So like you had a threefold increase 
because the people had no other no other help. So that was pretty awful. Now you I met a meeting with UNICEF and they told me that over forty percent of the children under five in Madagascar have stunted growth. Now like when you think of it, children under five, nearly half of the whole of them have stunted growth. And like Madagascar is officially one of the highest rates of chronic malnutrition in the whole world. It really is very bad. So one of the things I'm trying to help in Madagascar now at the moment, I was actually on the WhatsApp earlier today with that sister in in Madagascar because we're trying to get money for the this crisis of the COVID-19 because what they're finding is that the people don't understand what the virus is. It, unfortunately, John, since I was there, it has come to their city. Just one person so far has died. But as you know, once it has, you see, this place that I was in is way, way, way in the distant, you know, it's a way, way down south. It was, it took me almost 12 hours by road on a bad road in a kind of a, a, what would you call it, a kind of a communal taxi. So you're talking about a place that's a long way from the capital. Now, they're really very badly, badly situated, but the virus has reached them, unfortunately. So they're trying to gather funding because they need to buy the protective equipment. They don't probably hear so much about here, the PPE, for themselves and for the other two centres that they work with in other parts of the city. They also need it. And also then they need to get very basic hygiene supplies for people, for families, and they need to get food supplies. Because while food is not something normally that we would be very involved in giving out, at the same time, what they say about many of these countries, John, is that it won't be the virus that will kill them. The people will die from hunger because most of them die most of them live on the informal economy. That means that they go out every day, they do something on the street, they sell something, or they're doing something, getting paid by somebody for something. But it's very much day-to-day living. There really is no savings and there's no fallback. So if they can't go out to work on the street, to sell whatever, you know, very often they cook food in their home and they bring it out onto the street to sell it to other people, if there's nobody on the street because of the, the isolation, the curfews, and if they can't go out on the street, then that is producing already in all of our projects, several of them that I've been on to these days, that's producing a huge problem of lack of food because people haven't the money to, to go and buy food. And tell me, sister... Can we do anything this part of the world in Ireland to help you out in that effort? Oh, absolutely. And people have been fantastically generous, John. I have to say that the people of Ireland have been fantastically generous. I have a very good fundraising committee in Cork and I have very supportive friends in Limerick. So what people do is that I, I give around the bank account number that is specifically for this fundraising work. This account is not used in any way by the congregation. It's used solely for my fundraising work. So any money that anyone wants to donate can go straight, it can go either into that 
Bank of Ireland fund, or it can come straight to me here in Cork. Well, they can't take yourself, Sister Reid. Uh, I can tell you now, I live in Blackpool, and I can give you my address. It's very simple. It's 32 St. Francis Gardens, Blackpool, Cork. Okay. And then my phone number is 87 057-8249. And then my email is my own name, B-R-I-D-E, bride, dot, Cunahan, C-O-U-N-I-H-A-N, at gmail.com. So I do know, John, that things are very bad for many people in Ireland and they are likely to get worse. I do know that. And I also know that in terms of uh, fundraising, uh, people in Ireland in the recent years have had kind of questions about the money given to charity and whether it ever really reaches the poor. And unfortunately, you know, in the charity sector, we've had some stories that were less than encouraging. But all I can say to you is that you can be certain, I can say to your listeners, that any donation, big or small, that is given to this fund will reach the people who need it because we are working directly through our own sisters who are there on the ground. And I send the money directly to them. So there is no difficulty of anybody feeling that their money is going to a big black hole and it will never reach the people, because it will. I can give you that assurance, John. Thanks thanks for that, Brid. So, just going back over over your, your whole story there now, it's it's been a... A beautiful walk with the Lord. Uh, he, certainly, a, a few times you mentioned that you spoke with the Lord and he certainly answered you. He certainly gave the strength to carry on. Um, I, I suppose just to sum up your own vocation and your own journey with the Lord, how, how would you sum it all up, Brid? I would say that it's very important for any young person that's searching for the vo- their vocation to listen to what they might think is God's spirit within their own hearts. For example, I gave you a few examples there, John. I said at one point that when I listened to those people in Uburanas, it was like my heart, that something was burning within me as I listened. Now, also when I was sitting in my office in Cork with Marvel ice cream, I felt this question rising up. Is this all there is to life? Is this it? Hmm. And I think God puts into the heart of every young person who is searching for a way of life. Those desires, God puts those desires in our hearts. But you just need to take a little bit of quiet, a little bit of silence, a little bit of mindfulness, just to tune into what's going on within your own self. And you might feel that there is some restlessness there. There is something that you can't quite figure that is kind of making you a bit a, a bit searching. So my suggestion then would be that if that is true for some young person, that they would look for a spiritual guide. That can be a priest, it can be a sister, it can be a lay person. There are many people nowadays, John, many lay people who are in this work of spiritual guidance or spiritual direction. 
And that is something that will help the person to see, is God really calling me to some kind of a religious vocation? Because most people are called to the single life or to the religious life, to the married life, but a small number are called to this way of life, which is totally gospel-based. It's living the gospel in a particular way. And I suppose you might have heard, John, of what we call the three vows. People don't maybe often speak about them, but they are the basis of our commitment to God, like the married people take vows to each other. And we have three vows, which maybe the names of them are a little bit misleading because the names come from an old language, but the meaning of them is very important to us. For example, we talk about the vow of poverty. And when we talk about that, what we mean really is a commitment to share our lives with others in a spirit of service and to live in a free, simple and trusting way. So that means we try to be countercultural in the culture that tells you that it's all about acquiring more, having, you know, more things mm. and more things and more cars and more property and more whatever. We try to go against that by choosing to have a simple lifestyle and to share ourselves with others in service. That is very important for the vow of poverty. Then we talk about the vow of chastity. And that by the vow of chastity, we mean that we commit ourselves to continue always to keep our hearts open to the call of God to love. Because that kind of stirring in your heart is really the call of God. Now, you can close your heart to it or you can open your heart to it in love. And that is what our commitment is, that we try to open our hearts in love to this call of God that manifests itself in every day and to live that call of love in a joyful and loving way. No point, John, in going around with a long face if you're supposed to be a person that's claiming to be in love with the Lord and that you are committed to this way of living the vow of chastity. And then lastly, we talk about the vow of obedience. And that's uh, probably another misnomer because the word obey comes from the Latin word, which is translated as to hear. It's interesting. It's not to do, it's mm. to hear. Mm -hmm. And what we mean by the vow of obedience taken by religious nowadays is that we continue to search for the will of God in our own lives, in the congregation, and in the world around us. And we do know very clearly at one level what the will of God is if we listen in an opening and listening way, because Jesus has already given us the total blueprint in the Gospels. He has told us there the will of God, how to live, the Beatitudes tell it all to us. So that's our vow of obedience, that collectively, as a group, we commit ourselves to living this will of God. And for us as a congregation, it would be particularly with reference to families and to the poor. Sister, Sister Bree, thank you so much for, for taking so much time out to tell us that wonderful story, your, your journey with the Lord over all those years. It's so encouraging and we do, we, we do hope that whoever's listened to this programme this morning will get something from it. We'll just listen to the Lord as you did. They might be going over the Andes on a bus and, and asking the Lord, and but we'll be somewhere on the journey. 
Thank you so much and may the Lord continue to give the strength and the courage and the faith to continue the work you're doing. God bless you now. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. So again, uh, thanks to Sister Bridie for sharing with us her story. And as I said at the start of the programme, we'll broadcast the full interview sometime in June. Ladies and tonight at 11pm, we'll broadcast our usual programme with Noreen Lynch as our guest this week. And each day after the 1pm news uh, here in West Limit 102, we'll pray the rosary with Father Kevin Scanlon and Fadana. So to finish the broadcast this morning, we'll play Sister Bridie's uh, choice of music. It's I Dreamed a Dream by sung by Susan Boyle. So please God, until we meet again, hope you have a good week and God bless now.